Hello, everyone. It's April 7th, 2020. This week, Starship SN3 buckled under not enough pressure. NASA has some ambitious long-term plans for the moon, and we're talking to Jordan Noon of Relativity Space, where they are 3D printing rockets. It's a big show. Let's go and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 255 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So how you doing? Hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, an important thing to do when you're uh, feeling a little depressed is to take time to think about the good things that happened. And boy, guys, I really, I've got one. It's the worm. <laughs> yeah. The worm, yeah. The worm. So uh, there's so much good conversation happening around this, but uh, SpaceX put uh, a NASA logo on one of their boosters, and it's not—it's not the meatball, uh, the logo with the planet and the swoosh. It's the old worm logo, the the red, almost one single line, curvy logo that was on the side of the space shuttle. And uh, there's all this all this wonderful talk about um, NASA administrators trying to kill the worm. And who was it in particular that really hated the worm? Uh, I don't recall, actually. I didn't know anyone particularly did. Uh, I didn't either. I just figured, I mean, it just has such an old school 70s look, so I can imagine, I mean, somebody wanting to look, make, I like make it. NASA appear fresher. Oh, no, I like it too. But definitely if somebody's being all branded and it's like, come on, it's dated, we need to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, but at this at this point, it's dated enough that it's just classic and wonderful. Exactly. It comes back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm no fashion and, group, uh, group, but I know that. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And so uh, there's this wonderful talk. Actually, some of it was happening uh, in the chat this morning about how, uh, you know, if they reuse this booster, well, they're going to have to change the livery. But... Um, NASA already kind of keeps their own SpaceX boosters flagged for them. And I think it's because they follow those boosters a little closer during the rebuild. What's it called? Refurbishment process. Even through like original manufacturing, I believe they kind of keep an eye on their boosters. And so the, the only reflown boosters for Dragon going to ISS have been previous Dragon boosters. So uh, it just seems so exciting to me to have like the NASA logo on a booster and that booster is just like a NASA booster. <laughs> like That's so cool. <laughs> I really like that. Um, and boy, I can't think of any better look than a skinny white booster with a red worm logo on it. Like it just, it's so good. It does evoke something within me. I don't know what, I guess it looks like something out of a Stanley Kubrick film, maybe, I, mm. you know, or it, it just looks <laughs> old school, but still classic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Valentin in the, in the chat says he believes it was Dan Goldlin who was the one who really pushed to get rid of the worm. Uh, Goldlin, and then yeah. adds in which of course he was wrong. Mm. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> And and if you don't have the worm, like you don't have anything else that's good to put on the side of a rocket. Like the meatball just doesn't belong on the side of a rocket mm-hmm. if it's long and skinny. Yeah, and plus, and like you were getting at, I like just that it's one color. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't like yeah. busy logos. Like I mean, I'll go out and say it. University of Maryland has the my least favorite logo. I'll say of any college. It's oh, just got yeah. way crest, too much right? going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. yeah, crest. But um, I mean, otherwise, great school. Thank you. 
Starship, the most recent build, had its most recent accident. So, or I guess it's an accident. Um, a little oversight, or not even an oversight. Sorry, I'm just trying to pick exact words here. But um, they had an issue that was not the fault of Starship itself, and I think that that's the thing that we should probably get out of the yeah. way. Yeah. Right. A configuration error. Yeah. But there was fire involved, so it's okay. So there was fire involved. I don't. Well, I, I think it. it was just. I think it was uh like a vent, like a like a locks vent. Uh, burn off assembly, you okay. know, like where you see the, the locks vents sometimes have uh, flames coming off of them. And so that, that just kind of flared up afterwards. I don't think it was an actual. I, oh, okay. Oh, so, so Sam points out it, it was full of liquid nitrogen. And so the fire might have been batteries. That is worse. <laughs> it's definitely worse. <laughs> so Dennis, you have a, a nice write up here where you actually go through all the previous. Uh, models and their demises. Can you go through this for us? I like this. <laughs> yeah, I, the second I saw this story, I'm like, I'm, I'm having trouble keeping track. So this was originally <laughs> for my own, uh, uh, sanity. So, right. So the first, um, Starship after the hopper, which, you know, everything went great with that other than a, uh, cop V that went flying at one point, I think afterwards. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> otherwise that, that, those tests went great. The first, um, Starship prototype, the Mark one, that was the one that last November, uh, blew its top. If you remember seeing that kind of mm -hmm. pop the, top the uh, nose cone yeah. yep. way, top way top. out nowhere. The, way out what is it? Nowhere. The front fell off. The front fell off. <laughs> Yeah. And so um there was a nice there's nice videos of that you can check out. And then after that they switched to the uh kind of serial number designation where the idea is to get, you know, maybe up to twenty or so numbered ones before we're uh we have kind of the completed starship. And uh SN one, so this is the second prototype, but the first in this uh labeling scheme was the so one I, that i think it's actually pronounced serial number one. Oh, okay. so they it's are like... saying serial i mean yeah, i know that's what it's yeah. Stands I didn't know for, that right? either. Okay, yeah so that, that's what it stands for i don't i don't know if they actually say sn1 or ser serial number i mean okay they probably say sn1 because oh. serial number one it's just clunky but i mean it, it works you know I, I like reading out that you know acronyms a lot of times when i just read for fun so <laughs> says yeah. the man who so, just so, pronounced cop v yeah cop v i've never heard that before either <laughs> i was like what is he talking about and then i figured it out yeah that's that's true <laughs> i guess i could be idiosyncratic with this but yeah so um serial number one or sn1 is uh the one that in february which might seem like three years ago but was only two months ago or actually a month and change ago was the one that did a little bit of a hop and an implosion before it collapsed uh, down. And so, uh, again, great videos online. Uh, Boca Chica Gal, I think, had uh, a really mm. good one for that. And then uh, serial number two, no good videos for that one because that one survived. It uh, was uh, after, I think, SN1's demise, uh, serial number two was then picked or its focus was changed to test the uh, thrust puck in particular, which is the uh, right, right. Uh, you know, the bottom piece uh, that kind of holds the three engines uh, in place. It specifically transfers load from the engines into the tank. I did not know the name of that piece either, but I knew what it was because you know it had to exist. But I didn't know it was called a thrust puck, which is a really cool name. I, I think I think that's just a starship thing. I don't know if anybody else has a thrust puck. Oh really? Well, they, well, there has to be some. Well, I guess it depends on, on the type of vehicle, but that big plate. But I can't think of what it's called. A, th a thrust holds. plate. Okay, well there you go. But they call it a thrust puck at SpaceX, yeah. huh? So I, I think I think it's smaller than most most thrust plates. 
Cause because, because I, I think, I think the deal is because it's supposed to be like sort of a, a unibody construction. They need to transfer that load into the bottom of the tank instead of into the outer skin of the vehicle. Ah. You're saying that it's transferring the load onto the dome itself? Uh, or more towards yeah, the Yeah. Although, although the bottom of the locks, cause locks is on the bottom, right? Mm, yes. Oh no, yes. locks is on the, Locks on the top. It's on the bottom, but there's a, uh, from what I remember, it goes header tanks. Although I've seen some images where the header tanks are also at the bottom, but like, uh, and then the, the methane is kind of in the middle and then the locks is at the bottom. Okay. Uh, yeah. And at one point they wanted the header tanks inside each respective tank, but that was really early on. I don't think that that's the thing anymore. But anyway, yeah, I, I believe it's transferring load into the tank. And then the, the bottom of the locks tank is not super domey. It's, it's more like a straight sided cone. Um, and that's likely just due to the loads that are being placed on it. You'd rather be able to transfer those loads efficiently rather than have um, the best structure for holding pressure. It looks like the uh, like the methane tank um, above the common dome between the two tanks is also relatively straight sided. Um, that might be for manufacturing expediencies, but it also uh, likely has to do with um, draining efficiency. So you can get the last a uh, bit of fuel out of that without without having to wait for it to traverse across a less sloped surface like you would get in a spherical dome. Oh, actually, now that I look, it looks like the top dome is also relatively straight-sided. So, I, yeah, I bet you that's just manufacturing requirements or, you know, maybe a combination of all, all those things. Right. So SN2 tested the thrust puck in March. It survived. It retired. It saw its previous iterations suffer ignominious ends, and unfortunately it also saw SN3 suffer an end uh, on April 2nd, when uh, in this case they had uh, done the night before uh, a nice little test at ambient temperature, and all was well, and then they wanted to do a nice cryogenic pressure test. And so you've got the methane tank, which uh, is above the uh, LOX tank, but the LOX was filled with uh, liquid nitrogen at this point. You watch it, and you just see basically it kind of crumple like a soda can, and mm -hmm. the upper part kind of smushes down on the bottom, and then goes and flops off to the side with a little bit of a fire, <laughs> as Ben <laughs> alluded to earlier. Yeah, so this was a uh, this was also an unsuccessful test, but right, like everybody is kind of saying, and has always kind of been the case with uh, Elon and SpaceX's mentality is you kind of you test often, you fail, but you do it out in public and you kind of learn from that and you kind of, I don't know. Well, well now they're, now they're failing out in public. It used to be that, uh, like, uh, grasshopper, the explosion, we only had third party video. They didn't release that. And then, um, the initial, uh, carbon composite tank test they did out in the middle of the ocean and, you know, never told anybody what happened. So it is really cool that um, now they're doing this in a facility where it's pretty easy for third parties to set up to set up video, specifically Boca Chica gal who, who gets all the best video and live streams it. But it also doesn't seem like they're doing anything in particular to discourage that activity. So I, it's the next best thing to actually doing it out in public, you know, or to, to self-publishing, I guess. Right. And he, he hops on Twitter and just starts talking about it pretty darn quickly once yeah. it gets out there. Yeah, exactly. So um, people pretty quickly just 
watching what happened, uh, suspected that there wasn't enough pressure in the uh, LOX tank's uh, ulge space. This was confirmed uh, with a quote from Elon or a tweet uh, where he says, quote, pretty much good news is that this was a test configuration error rather than a design or build mistake. Not enough pressure in the LOX tank ulage to maintain stability with a heavy load in the CH4 tank. This was done with N2. So be before you move on, I want to uh, define ullage for people. That's that's just the empty space inside the tank. Right. So if right. So the reason we got you know you always see these vents happening is because uh, when you're cryogenic, the liquid wants to uh, boil away, and so you do not want it to boil and become a gas and just have that gas fill up more and more of the actually can't fill up more and more of the tank. It just you know builds up the pressure and pressure in the tank mm -hmm. and explodes. Yeah. So you got to get that out of there. So that's the basic idea behind that. And so um, what may have happened here was uh, uh, some another kind of. Uh, tweet from Elon was that some valves may have leaked at the cryogenic temperatures, and so they're planning to fix and retest soon. Of course, this would be on SN4, serial number four. So, so leaky valves at cryo temperatures doesn't sound like a configuration error. That does sound like a like a design error or a specifications error. Are they talking about a leaky valve like on board the Starship itself, or like maybe something you know that has to do with the ground equipment? That'd I be mean, the only way yeah. I could square those two. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what might have happened is maybe they, well, so liquid nitrogen is colder than liquid oxygen, right? I'm trying to remember which one you have to make first before you can make the other one. But, it, you know, if, yeah, if it was a configuration error in the, in the ground equipment, maybe they flowed, uh, the wrong liquid through the wrong pipes. And that might have been, might have been the issue. Mm -hmm. Is it supposed to carry a liquid nitrogen in the uh, headspace, or is it supposed to be liquid helium? Because I, I actually... thought that they were autogenously pressurized. Did, did that change? Which, you know, I was also considering that, but I guess not, because that fuel gets used up pretty quickly. So I guess that's probably why you can't do that, and you have to pressurize with helium. But in this case, it's nitrogen, and I thought that it would be helium as well. So well, the, the, the nitrogen's I... just for testing, right? That's okay, not... That's... Just for testing? Okay. Well, that's I mean, what... that's kind of what <laughs> I'm wondering, yeah. <laughs> Is that just for testing because it's much more abundant and obviously helium's expensive and so I guess that's why they're not going to use it for a test. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then Sam in the chat points out that nitrogen's boiling point is 77 Kelvin and oxygen's is 90 Kelvin. So just uh, regular frozen or regular liquid oxygen is going to be warmer than liquid nitrogen, but also when they densify the oxygen, I don't know exactly what, what temperatures they're using, but that will also push the oxygen temperature down. So if these valves leak at 77 Kelvin and below, you know, something like that, that might still be an issue with densified oxygen, but who knows? Um, and then, uh, methane is, uh, way up at 111. Mm -hmm. Uh, degree, uh, 111 Kelvin, uh, which is practically balmy. That's, that's the one thing I, I, I did, I didn't know how to compare nitrogen and oxygen, but I do know how to compare, you know, nitrogen, methane, and water, because you see this awesome gradient in the solar system as to what's mm. your primary ice. You know, if you're around Jupiter, you're probably going to get water ices. If you're around Saturn, you're going to start getting methane ices and still water ices. And mm. then, um, when you get all the way out to Neptune, then you got, Nitrogen ice. So nice. We don't need that. We just wanted to point that out as a fun thing. Yeah, no, I, I, like, <laughs> I, I like I like the uh, uh, the planetary science approach to that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, while it's a bit of a, I mean, not a bit of a. While this is a bummer, 
it hurts a bit more because it sounds like, uh, according to um, Eric Berger, multiple sources um, are say uh, we're telling him that uh, Star uh, SN3 would have done a 150 uh, meter flight test next week as early as Tuesday, or for you listening. It might have happened the day this podcast is released. So clearly that's going to fall back a bit. But that's still actually really cool because that just tells you kind of how close we are to seeing one of these uh, full-scale yeah. prototypes actually get airborne, which is yeah. going to be pretty awesome. <laughs> so what happens now? Like when can we expect to see another Starhopper hop? Well, hopefully in a month or so because um, SN4 is already uh, – construction already started on it last month. I guess going kind of back to just how this seems like there's kind of problem after problem after problem with these, but to kind of be an optimist about it, look how quickly they're spitting them out. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're spitting them out so fast that they could still destroy them every couple of months and still have another one <laughs> that, you know, exists. In his <laughs> and and what's, what's really impressive to me is like Starhopper – it was only preceded by Star Popper, right? The the one other test article that that exploded before that, or you know, popped. And so the the difference in scale between Star Hopper and the Starship prototypes is pretty big. I mean, like it's almost mm. you know, it's almost an order of two. I think uh, they're they're almost twice as big. And so the the fact that they are almost to the point where they can fly a vehicle that's twice as big and actually, you know, actually start doing flight tests this quickly. Like that's, that's really impressive, uh, speed, even though we're, we're popping a bunch, you know, watching a bunch of them get destroyed. Like mm -hmm. that's a really rapid pace. So hopefully we'll see a launch next month. That would be cool. Or at some point soon, probably not within a month, but you know, mm -hmm. let's move on to the next story, which is Jamestown base, which, Yay. okay, this is the first I've heard of this. I, well, this is not the very first, but I just found out about this, but I guess most people did. Jamestown base. No, 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 uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. 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 J Jamestown base is a reference to for all mankind. It's actually called Artemis base camp for right now. Oh, okay. I'm okay. sorry. That had me confused. <laughs> okay. So yes. Joke. So I'm in sorry. the show notes here, it says Jamestown base. And I was like, really? That's, I never not heard that before. Clearly David and I still need to watch that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I've seen some of it. I guess I haven't seen enough of it. I don't remember that being mentioned ah. so far in like the episodes that I've seen. So, so what we're really talking about here is NASA released a paper, a document. Uh, the document's title is NASA's Plan for Sustained Lunar Exploration and Development. And so I was really hoping that this was going to be really laying out all the dates uh, and goals for Artemis, since, you know, we we kind of been talking that uh, about that for the last month or two and kind mm -hmm. of expecting a big update. That's not exactly this. This is more of a, a generalized document. Uh, it does have one specific date in it, um, which is uh, Artemis 3 being cited for 2024 uh, for the first landing. But the... The document has kind of a an interesting perspective where they talk about first sending robots using uh, CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services contract, um, which is where uh, NASA has handed out contracts to Astrobotic to fly Peregrine and Intuitive Machine to fly uh, Nova C. Also, there there was one, there was a third one, I forget, but they dropped out. But basically, the the CLIPS program is going to be landing. Uh, cargo on the moon's surface. And this document uh, only mentions one r r payload by name, which is uh, Viper, the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover, which is pretty cool. It's got, uh, I think, a meter-long regolith probe called Trident, I think. And, and the document also 
starts the robotic section by talking about LRO and kind of talking about LRO, the, the lunar reconnaissance orbiter is the granddaddy of the Artemis program. And, <laughs> you know, it's been, uh, uh, observing the moon for X number of years, uh, like, like a decade or something. Right. And then, uh, once we, you know, have, have sent a bunch of robots, including, uh, uh, orbiters and Viper and, and it sounds like additional landers, then we'll start doing the the human campaigns, which is going to start with Artemis three actually landing on the moon. Hopefully, the Gateway uh, still being involved. Um, you know, we we talked about Lavero pulling Gateway from the critical path, um, but this document mm-hmm. doesn't say anything about it being non critical. Doesn't say anything about it being critical either. It just kind of talks about it with the assumption that it's going to happen, which I, I think. Uh, might just be uh, marketing lag or marketing spin, but I'm hoping that it's actually a, a good indication that uh, we're we're still hoping this is going to uh, be carried off. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. To just jump in here. So, could you still have this sustained lunar exploration and development without Gateway? Yes. If you do take it out, I think NASA thinks yes. So I'm going to have to go with NASA's opinion and say yes. <laughs> and that's that's mostly me copping out and not not forming an opinion of my own here. Okay. <laughs> and, and let me let me turn that question around to you two hmm. because I feel like your opinions are just as as valid as as my guesses. Like what 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 do you guys see? Do you think that we'll actually be able to see sustained uh lunar campaigns with no gateway? I think so actually because uh it kind of depends on how you do the architecture, but you could totally do it without the gateway and in fact, I think many would say that it would actually be easier and better if you did it that way because you could do what's called like uh, a lift and throw, you know, which is hmm. um you know, mm. the most efficient use of the Delta V. Uh, of the Oberth effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So having to go to a Lagrange point first, stop and then, you know, keep on going. It just seems like an unnecessary step. Well, keep anyway, in mind, yeah. lift and throw requires you, it, it limits your landing sites or at least your liftoff sites. So de- definitely a, a possibility. But I mean, I feel like these days Delta V is not as precious as it used to be. We have, you know, more efficient engines and more reliable systems. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you're, you're definitely, you're definitely right. Um, looking at this document though, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but they are talking about base camp and gateway being tied together. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. So that's, that's just getting people there. And then there's the sustained strategic presence phase. And Dennis, I'm going to hand this off to you because you did most of this right up here. Right. So the, you know, this is from what I had been following in, in the news. This is the real new meat and potatoes here. It's starting to talk about what we're going to actually do uh, on the moon long term uh, and beyond. Actually, they talk you know, a good bit about Mars in this uh, document as well. And so the upshot is essentially, you know, uh, one to two month missions at the South Lunar Pole. This is uh, talking about LRO is the granddaddy, right? Uh, identifying uh, water in these perpetually shaded craters. Um, this is kind of the place where we'll want to establish a uh, human presence, or at least even if it's not, doesn't have a human there all the time, you know, <laughs> this this would be the place to set up a lunar base camp. Um, the document includes a uh, an image, a picture showing uh, at least half a dozen sites that have already been scouted for long duration acts. Uh, and so these have been selected because of their combination of uh, long duration access to sunlight. Um, they are good for uh, direct to earth communications. 
and that they have the right kind of surface slope and roughness because it is very cratered and hilly at the poles, but you can find locations to set up, you know, a uh, habitat mm-hmm. potentially there. You know, you don't need to have, you know, a hundred square miles of, you know, flat terrain to be able to set up just a little lunar hab. <laughs> yeah. And um, the upshot, this is, this is really cool to think about. There's a three-step uh, program uh, talked about specifically that would consist of a uh, an unpressurized rover, so similar to the uh, you know lunar rovers of the past. Uh, this would be the lunar terrain vehicle. So this is for a nice little uh, Sunday night, you know, jaunt or Sunday day uh, jaunts, little road trips to go out and kind of explore and check things out. And then I had not really thought about something like this, but a pressurized rover called a habitable mobility platform. So this could be, you know, for 45 day missions that you're living inside this mobile habitat or, you know, and that sounds really sci-fi and cool to me. And then of course, uh, for this to be a proper lunar base, uh, they'll also have a foundation surface habitat, which can, uh, support uh, four people for, you know, extended stays at the uh, lunar surface. And so this is uh, called the Artemis Base Camp is the idea to go and establish this. And that's kind of the lunar aspect of this. uh, But there's also um, a Mars component to it as well, right? Because if the idea is Mm -hmm. that the moon is the stepping stone before we head to Mars, um, how can you take advantage of what we have uh, ultimately set up there uh, to prepare and practice for a Martian mission. And this is this is what I was talking about. This is what makes me think that um, Gateway might be a little more critical to a sustained presence on the moon is because with base camp and Gateway, we learn about Mars. Whereas if we just have a base camp, we're, we're not going to have as many lessons learned to apply to Mars. Exactly. And so Gateway's role in this would be that they'll essentially... As, as it keeps getting built up, uh, have a uh, larger uh, inflatable module there. And the idea would be that a, you know, uh, the astronauts could head to, you know, Gateway and actually spend months uh, in this module. And then uh, that would simulate the uh, trip to Mars, right? Even though they're just around the moon, they would still, you know, be in a outside the uh, Van Allen belts. They'd be, you know, in microgravity. And so then uh, after a few months in this module, then, you know, they quote unquote reach Mars. And so then you'd have uh, two of the astronauts head to the uh, lunar surface uh, for you know, a simulated Mars mission, I guess, and then return back to the Gateway and then spend a few more months at Gateway uh, to, again, simulate the return trip back to home. And so this would be just, you know, uh, what a role-playing uh, uh, mission for trying to understand what kind of stresses and pressures you're going to have of people, what are they going to be physically subjected to as well as psychologically and emotionally subjected to, and do that instead of, you know, on the surface of the Earth in these admittedly great uh, experiments that we do here, but to actually have it uh, in a more realistic environment. So any any thoughts on pretending to go to Mars at Gateway? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I see the value there, you know, of Gateway and the base just because it does make for good research uh for going to mars but uh 
One interesting result of this article was that a former guest, Laura Forsick, who we've had on a couple of times, uh, she ran a poll on Twitter, which I really like because I just like her polls and her questions, you know, because yeah. I think that she she actually says it and asks the question where, you right. know, we don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, exactly. She, she doesn't have the constraints of some sort right. of like formal position with NASA or something where you got to be right. careful about what you say and ask. Yeah. Yeah. So her question was, in light of all this, how long before the first moon landed? Landing. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the official date right now is 2024. But apparently, like only 6% of people who were polled on Twitter think that that's going to happen by 2024. And then we have 57% who think by 2027 or later. Yeah. So, so this is, Sounds you know, right. this is a Twitter poll. So it's, you know, not, it's an opinion poll. It's extremely unscientific, but she did get 265 respondents. So, like, it's a, I think it's a good cross section of a particular population of people on Twitter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Un- people who yeah, follow unla- Laura Forsick. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> right. But that, that, I think that selects it in like a positive way. You know what I mean? Like the thing about yeah. internet polls is you think this could be any old Yahoo on the internet, right. but this one's self-selected right. to be people that are interested in this kind of topic and stuff. And so it might be a little more knowledgeable. But I think it also probably skews you know, from not just all the people who are interested, but also the people who are interested who think in a similar way to Laura and us, which might be a little more pessimistic. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, so both Laura and, uh, G. Makulka of Talking Space, uh, which is a, a fantastic, uh, radio show come podcast. Actually, I don't know if they were originally a radio show. They definitely, uh, record the show as if it's a radio show. Um, mm. but you know, two people whose opinions aren't always super accurate, but always well reasoned and, and well thought out and very worth listening to. And I only say not super accurate because none of us are super accurate, I think. But, uh, oh boy. <laughs> I'm trying real hard not to dig myself into a hole here. Uh, so, so both, both Laura and Jean, uh, are betting on 2026. Uh, as the first landing. So, um, it's interesting that, you know, more than half of the people, uh, responding to this poll are, are more pessimistic than both Laura and Jean. So, so what would you, what would you guys vote for in this poll? I think I'd go for 2027 or later. I'm 2027 plus. Yeah. Oh, so this is actually pretty fun. Some of the things they talked about in the document for, longer longer term so like let's imagine Mm. that having the base camp becomes sort of like routine you know what i mean like we're just going to be mentioning on our you know upcoming space flight events yeah you know we got a few more astronauts and maybe a cosmonaut heading to uh or in a Tycho not heading to the, uh, you know, base or something like that. I don't know. But also mentioned is a uh, a lunar surface innovation initiative. And so this is um, the idea to really try to develop uh, lunar-specific technologies. Some of them are already uh, underway, but, you know, ISRU, um, how to do excavation and construction on the moon, lunar dust mitigation, uh, things along those lines to actually have, you know, people going and, you know, I don't know, proposing experiments, uh, doing, you know, designing pieces of equipment or uh, little robots and rovers and whatnot to actually go and test these different things. So that's something that uh, will probably be fun to report on, different companies getting uh, awarded, you know, different grants in that initiative. But again, this is longer than long term, uh, at least longer than the uh, base camp itself. And then this, well, this one's really, really near and dear to my heart. People, right, always talk about, you know, you got the far side of the moon, remarkably radio quiet beyond that side. Earth is a huge source of radio. And so having a lunar radio telescope on the far side established, just again, to give you an idea of what kind of 
timeline I'm talking about <laughs> in terms of long term. Um, that would be something really neat. And then finally, um, when you're thinking these, you know, again, these pie in the sky, you know, <laughs> far future ways of establishing a lunar presence, um, one idea floated in the document was something like, uh, was a robotic hopper that could just be this kind of automated robotic hopper <laughs> that can deliver science and tech payloads all over the lunar surface. So you can <laughs> go and send your kind of like, you know, yeah, I don't know. You want to go and do some fresh up close imaging of an Apollo 11 site and go hop on over there and <laughs> take your pictures, hop on back. I don't know. So just, uh, I, I like that they're throwing out these really uh, far future ideas in the document as well. And so it's the idea for the long-term lunar presence. All right, three short and sweets this week. What is our first one, Dennis? First up, Virgin Orbit selects site in Japan for horizontal launches. As early as 2022, Virgin Orbit hopes to launch from Japan's Oita Prefecture in the south of the country. The company has announced it is working with regional partners to use the Oita Airport for Launch One flights, which can take off from any airport capable of accommodating a Boeing 737-400. The partnership has begun a technical study to assess the feasibility of the plan, which will result in Oita joining airports in the U.S. and Great Britain as hosts of Launch One flights. Next up, NASA selects Sunrise. So the Sun Radio Interferometer Space Experiment, or SUNRISE, has been selected by NASA as the next mission to further understand solar particle storms. The mission was awarded $62.6 million and has a launch date of no earlier than July 1st, 2023. The SUNRISE spacecraft will be a 6U CubeSat requiring only 5 units, but with a 6 as a backup. It will launch as a rideshare aboard a rocket built by Maxar, most likely as part of a commercial launch and will have a mission lifetime of 12 months during which it will be collecting data. And finally, Stratolaunch plans to build a hypersonic plane. The company founded by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen announced plans to build a hypersonic reusable aircraft that can be launched from its giant carrier plane, but can also take off under its own power from a conventional runway. The vehicle, called Talon A, will be powered by a liquid propellant engine and will attain speeds of Mach 5 to Mach 7. Stratolaunch describes the vehicle as a testbed for heretofore unobtainable measurement access to the hypersonic flight environment on a recurring basis. So basically, I guess that's the first time that that's ever been a thing. I didn't know that, but that's very cool. So you can test hypersonic vehicles like on a recurring basis as opposed to, I guess, before that they've just had like, you know, these little... One and dones? Yeah, like a... What's it called? A scramjet? But that was not a thing that they regularly flew, I guess. All right, cool. Let's do an interview. Welcome to the interview segment. Today we have Jordan Noon, the co-founder and CTO of Relativity Space with us. How's it going, Jordan? It's going well. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, cooped up, but doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what we should do here is first talk a little bit about the big ideas behind Relativity Space. Um, and then I would love to hear about your personal background and what got you to this point to be basically running a, a space company. So can you tell us the big ideas behind Relativity? Yeah, I can start. Uh, we found the company almost uh, four and a half years ago at the end of 2015 with just uh, two people. It was myself and my co-founder, Tim, who I knew from college. And I will go into some of my college background in a bit. But we, we saw a future where 3D printing was applied to um, an entire rocket. 3D printing has been really successful um, at being adopted in the aerospace industry at a small scale. And we were seeing those benefits across the industry as, as we went from college to 
um, a variety of companies, then, but no one was really trying to push it into an entire product, then in an entire aerospace vehicle. And we saw an opportunity to do that where really how a company and manufacturing floor was, you know, designed and, and built as far as the factory was designed and built would be rethought. So we set out at the end of 2015, uh, left our jobs then and started Relativity and, and we hit the ground running with an early financing then, um, and that financing was to start an effort to fly our first launch vehicle, then the Terran 1, which can fly 1250 kilograms to low Earth orbit, but also for our long-term vision. And our long-term vision with that technology was to lightweight it and send it to another planet. And the vision that we um, have today is that we will be the first company to 3D print uh, a rocket on Mars. So taking our printing technology and using it to support uh, human exploration then um, across the solar system uh, by doing in situ manufacturing, you know, which is like crazy in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so what got you to this point? Like, like if you could talk about what what you studied in school, and uh, I I understand your previous job was over at SpaceX. What I mean, being in a position where you're willing to quit a job with a major rocket manufacturer to then go start your own company, I mean, that's a very special place to reach what how, how did you do that that's a great question and i think i'll start with my my college experience where i actually met tim and that'll lead into the the spacex story and i think a little of where we started to have the the kind of entrepreneurship side of us to grow was was in college and so when i started college um i started at, at usc university of southern california and my first week i was sitting in my you know aerospace 101 class i was an aerospace engineer you know by degree and a group came in. It was a student group called the USC Rocket Propulsion Laboratory. They were a hands-on student group trying to be um, the first student group to fly a rocket to space. So past the Von Karman line or what is 100 kilometers in, in altitude. And that was really, really exciting to me. And I've, to be frank, never been a good student as far as really enjoying being in the classroom, really enjoying the structure than of being in kind of a pre-built environment. And this group was setting their own goals. They were working on their own. They have their own, you know, um, tips and tats with the university administration on, on their direction versus what the university is looking for, but very much driven by the students. And I saw this as an opportunity to get involved with something really exciting. Um, in addition to, um, my academics and actually going through, you know, the, the curriculum for the aerospace engineering program. I went to their first meeting um, that year, and then I think it was on the you know the first Friday of the first week of school, and um, got more engaged. I went to the actual lab where they were building these rockets. I met Tim there. I think actually my first day in the lab, he was developing some simulation code for you know trajectory simulation for um, the vehicles that would fly, and he was teaching me you know some of the things about coding and MATLAB and dynamic simulation, and we stayed in touch you know for a long time after that with him him mentoring me. But I went through that program from you know kind of entry level day one engineer in engineering school to eventually taking over that program as a, a junior and senior, and I ran that group for for two years. And in the two years that I oversaw that group, that involved or that uh, included uh, the first two shot attempts that that group ever flew and it was about 10 years into the group's history then those were um, two um, same design or very similar design vehicles that flew from takeoff to Mach 7 in about 13 seconds so Mach 7 is about a, at that altitude about a mile per second in speed um, so very quick um, very high temperature very high you know aerodynamic loads 
um, vehicles, um, and they after they do their their motor burns, they coast for about five minutes to to apogee, and we were expecting that to be about a, a five minute coast to about 150 kilometers. And in doing so, you know, both of those rockets did fail. They they had issues um, during ascent, but we learned quite a bit as a group. That group actually successfully flew last year past the von Karman line, um, you know, on their fourth attempt of of flying the space shot. But in doing so, at least for my time there, I had a huge amount of experience then in in managing people, in setting goals then that were very self-driven, um, in the operational overhead of something like that, that involved coordination between multiple government agencies, getting launch insurance, then doing all of this as a student group where none of these agencies we were working with were nece- necessarily expecting, you know, a group of 19 year olds to walk in asking for insurance to fly to space. <laughs> then, um, which, which led to a little bit of the themes of, of when we left our, our future jobs to start relativity. We were very self driven. We had a ton of experience with. Um, the coordination of government agencies and managing people and just the operational complexity of something like that, that someone our age traditionally, then I was, you know, I was 22 when we started Relativity, then that most people at that age do not have that level of operational experience. And that, I think, gave us a large head start in growing the company, um, but also gave us the drive to to make that jump to um, to actually start the company. They need to have these programs, I think, at every university, it sounds like. I, I, I agree with that. And, and it was definitely a huge part of what, what not only led us to be in a good spot of starting the company, but also um, my experience in that program is absolutely what got me the opportunity at SpaceX immediately out of college. Yeah, we've, we've talked to a couple of SEDS teams. And uh, it, it's funny because a lot of these, uh, I mean, they're their kids or, you know, college kids feel really critical about their abilities because they're like, oh, well, you know, we weren't able to fly this and we weren't able to accomplish that goal. But, you know, like, like what happened to you, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have two failures on your hands. Those are two more failures than anybody else has had at your age. And so that's, that's kind of a cool, uh, a cool story to, to put you into, into this place. So relativity is 3D printing rockets. Could you tell us a bit about your Stargate technology? Yeah, I'll, I'll expand on Stargate. Stargate's the name of our 3D printers that, that we develop. And as a company, we use 3D printers that are off the shelf for some of the smaller components. And those 3D printers have been pretty well adopted by a majority of industry at a small scale. Then, But we wanted to print an entire rocket. And, and our Terran 1 vehicle is a 7.5-foot diameter and 105-foot tall. Then, so, so not small by most standards. And that involved making the world's largest metal 3D printers um, as a company. And when we started four and a half years ago, that was my my first uh, project, essentially, was architecting and getting the first one of these things built and, and uh, printing parts. And within the first uh, three or four months, we had a successful prototype running. Um, we've since turned some of those parts that were our early, early parts into, you know, <laughs> tables and whatnot across the company. Then as, as uh, we re- repurpose them as furniture. But that is uh, how we started was making, you know, small parts that were representative of propellant tank domes. Then, so what was a five-foot diameter and two-and-a-half-foot tall dome, almost a spherical dome at the time, um, was what we made with still just the two of us at the company. It took about three or four months to get that first article out. Uh, It was a successful first demonstration of the technology, especially being done with the resources we had, which was just a small financing round from Mark Cuban and uh, the Silicon Valley incubator uh, Y Combinator. And that led us to um, to raising about $14 million, still again with just the two of us from um, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm called Social Capital. 
as far as the technology itself, we designed the printers to be very scalable because we saw a future where these were uh, making very large objects then in them, but also that we wanted to apply them in other ways, bigger rockets, other products in aerospace. We didn't want to constrain them in any way. So these uh, printers have robot arms in them. Then six degree of freedom, industrial robot arms, the largest ones we have at a company are just under four meters long as far as robot arms, so they're quite big. Um, the deposition heads use a variety of off-the-shelf technology and a lot um, of custom-built parts, a lot of custom-built software that is a lot of the core IP of the company, which tunes um, the actual deposition process in real time. A, a lot of the challenge of scaling the printers from you know small tabletop ornaments, then and, and that's kind of my size reference for what other people do in aerospace is, is small tabletop-sized items, but to something that's the size of a small building then was getting uh, controllability and understanding of the print process as uh, the printers scale. And that is done through real-time control and feedback, um, some of which does go into you know very novel and very modern controls techniques that have machine learning on the background of them. And that has been something we have really pioneered and has led to that successful entrance of the printing tech at that scale, is really using modern, uh, modern techniques for uh, tuning and controlling that print. So... Did I hear you right? It took you two months to produce your first your first successful prints? Yeah, it was about two or three months at the first. Um, you know, the company started right at the beginning of 2016 after after our exit from our former companies at the end of 2015. And we had our first demonstration dome out uh, in the middle of, of March. I want to say of, of 2016. And, and so how representative, I mean, two, two months is insane. Um, so I'm assuming that you've done a lot of learning and development since then. And that, that those first kind of those first test coupons that you were producing were just like, okay, you know, here's a hello world. Now let's go make it better. Right. Like th there's no way that two months was, was enough time to, to produce something of super high quality. Absolutely. And a lot of that early work is what shaped the development roadmap for what has lasted, you know, another, another four years past then, uh, guidance on where we needed to hire on the team then, but it was enough of a proof of concept as far as, uh, the ability to have a metal deposition process that had, you know, high density, high amount of fusion material, and then that could be that could be controlled. Then, and there's there's years and a, a much smarter team at very, every area that's involved with it than me. Then that we've hired on since then to actually get the technology working to the point that we'd be comfortable making a flight vehicle with it. And that's the point we're at now. We definitely were not there four years ago at the the MVP level. Mm -hmm. Then on just making something that was metal. Because our, our first flight vehicle is flying um, next year. Uh, so that flight vehicle is actually in the printers now. We have we have four of those full-size Stargate printers today. We have another four of them coming online this year. So we'll have eight, eight online um, at our headquarters um, by end of this year. And the four that we have today do have the first flight vehicle uh, getting manufactured in them right now. I was going to ask a real quick question. Um, since I'm no expert on 3D printing and what it's capable of, this image is just something that's a little bit still mysterious to me. How easy is it to print a dome? Because that sounds like impossible, but I don't know. I might be missing something, but how do you print a dome? <laughs> well, printing metal is something that is um, fairly unfamiliar to, to most people. Then that uh, metal printing is something that uh, is a stretch beyond where most most of the consumer products have been advertised where people are familiar with, you know, the, uh, the phase of plastic 3D printing where everyone was expected to have a plastic 3D printer at home making, you know, toothbrushes. And that phase really never caught on. Then we 
uh, with the metal printing have, have adopted that in the aerospace fields in one way or another. And that's taking generally metal feedstock or metal powder, um, you know, some form of, of raw feedstock to feed into the printers, melting it as it comes in and then shaping it in real time. That is quite challenging from a lot of regards, but you're basically locally melting material as it is going into your 3D printed part and letting it fuse. And there's a lot of detail in how that fusion happens in order to get a very consistent, controlled and, and understood formation of solid metal from this moving molten melt pool that you are controlling with a robot arm. And, and that's a lot of where the challenge comes in. And if you melt this metal, and this is kind of the way I, I explain it to people who aren't familiar with metal 3D printing, then is if you melt this metal in a consistent and controlled enough manner, then while moving this robot arm around that has this, this, you know, metal being extruded from the end of it, then you can start forming shapes of a, of a known or intended geometry. But there's a lot of challenges underneath the hood there and making sure you have that consistent formation, that you understand what's going on, even taking, you know, design files and the geometry and translating those into robot motion and printer commands is, is very non-trivial. And those were the early steps that we, we demonstrated at very much a minimum viable level to make those first parts, which were those five foot diameter, you know, you know two foot tall domes on the, you know, 40 to 50 pound scale of parts. And now, you know, the, we have four printers online that can go to 15 foot tall and uh, 12 foot diameter parts, which are making a, a majority of the stage one components right now. So those are already the world's biggest. And we have two printers coming online uh, this year then that are double that height. So 30 foot tall printers. Wow. And that's for making components twice as tall. And those pounds can be up to or those parts, excuse me, can be up to, you know, four to five thousand pounds each then because you're printing a part that's, you know, 25, 26 feet tall in, in one go. So I, I have two follow-up questions now <laughs> as a result of that. So first, I'm, I'm just curious, how common is the use of metal-based 3D printers? Like, are there other industries where that pops up a lot, or is that kind of a, a rare sort of niche thing at this at this point? It depends on the industry. There's a handful that have adopted the printing tech um, for for different reasons. Um, aerospace is one because aerospace components tend to be rather complicated and complex. Uh, lots of joints, lots of high tolerances to get that joining, um, whether it's mechanical or welding and whatnot, to, um, to go correctly. Then and with 3D printing, you actually combine multiple parts together into one print because you can have, let's say, an internal cavity that does not need to be exposed to do machining or traditional subtractive manufacturing. So there's huge benefits in doing the 3D printing for these complex assemblies because you can turn that assembly into one print with no joints, with no bolts, with no flanges on it. So you can reduce weight, you can reduce manufacturing overhead. Uh, a lot of the premise of why we use 3D print baseline is you dramatically reduce that part count. And while dramatically reducing that part count, you simplify the shop floor, that there's significantly less translation of a design into manual build steps into quality assurance checks because all of that is done and mm. integrated together in the printer. So it's very much digitizing the manufacturing process from one very mm. manual, one that has to be translated into work orders and manufacturing instructions into a, a digital data centric process, which is the direction the whole world's going in anyway. Mm -hmm. In doing so, you know, you end up with, uh, with benefits that align with aerospace. Uh, and, and that's the way I, I really sell why it makes sense for not only rockets, but the entirety of aerospace is that when you do 3D printing in any additive process, then where you're adding material to it rather than subtracting from a large block, then you get value alignment. In, in aerospace, parts want to be lightweight. 
but when you lightweight them, you have more manufacturing processes and you have more time involved, which drives up cost. So you end up with diminishing returns where you don't want to make your product better because it's more expensive. Then, and you hit some knee in the curve where you try to optimize the balance between the two. When you go to additive though, and you're adding material from, from essentially nothing or, or a base plate to form this part, then if you lightweight it and optimize it further for better performance, it's actually cheaper and faster to make. So you all of a sudden are incentivized to make a better product. And that's something that we see is that there's no way around that being adopted in every way because you're incentivized to make a good product rather than punished to make a good product. That makes sense. If you're, if you're starting from scratch, then lightweight ought to be easier, right? So <laughs> That's right. No. And, and, and to your question, there's, there's definitely companies that have adopted the printing at a small scale. So uh, kind of one cubic foot size parts. Um, but they're not, they're not doing it holistically. And the way that we view it as a company, you know, the, the things I've hinted at so far where the shop floor, kind of the philosophy of the shop floor gets turned into this digital process. Then, um, but also, uh, a lot of the things we value as a company on a technical side, like iteration speed or manufacturing time, that if you go to this digital manufacturing process, there is no fixed tooling. You don't have some big mandrel for forming composites. You don't have bump forming tooling for all of the sheet metal or all this welding backing tooling in order to join your parts together in the right manner. Then all of these huge expenses, all the capital equipment that's required to make an aerospace production line, all of a sudden goes away and is replaced by a series of flexible manufacturing you know, locations, which are all 3D printers. So if you want to change the size of your vehicle, let's say make it bigger in diameter or taller or move a component inside the vehicle for, for any reason, then in a traditional manufacturing world, there's a huge amount of checks there that need to happen and, and rework on a manufacturing floor to get the equipment there, let alone um, the cost and the cost of changing some of these huge pieces of tooling. Then and if you've been in any aerospace factory, there's there's tooling everywhere. When you go to the 3D printing approach, it's flexible. So if you have this change, you can do that change essentially for free. And that allows you to iterate very quickly. But that iteration is only true and that ability is only true if you're 3D printing nearly everything. If you have one component that takes two years to change on your product, then the entire product takes two years to change. <laughs> so you really, sure. you really have to drive more and more that direction to get this holistic view of how design changes with 3D printing. And it does not happen for companies that adopt it for 1% of their vehicle. You really need to be hitting, you know, multiple tens of percents, if not very close to kind of 90 to 95% of the vehicle to see those holistic benefits. I'd like to be able to give our listeners sort of a visual on on what we're talking about here. Um, obviously, there will be photos and videos and everything in, in the show notes. But Stargate, when it's in operation, is essentially a robotic arm that can follow a path. And then for larger components, you also have like a lazy Susan, like a, like a turntable that can kind of extend the reach of the arm almost by moving the part to the arm instead of uh, the other way around. Um, did, did I get all that right? Yeah, yeah. No, overall, it's, it's a large robotic cell with a variety of, of turntables and lifts in it in order to move the part and the robot around. Um, but overall, there's, there's a variety of degrees of freedom there that allow um, the print cell to, to maneuver in the right locations to deposit material. One thing that I might need some clarification on, I had read that these printers use like what's called laser sintering, which is different from melting, right? So is that what these things do? They sinter rather than melt? And exactly what is the difference? Because I'm not sure about that myself, except I do know what melting is. That's a, that's a great <laughs> question. And it, it does get very much in the details of the printers. And I'm happy to 
um, to help explain. Uh, the smaller printers that I've been referencing are often ones that use a process called direct metal, metal excuse me, direct metal laser sintering. Then, and there's that sintering keyword there. Um, that's true for the small printers that have often been used by, by other companies, and we do use a variety of them as well. The bigger printers we make, the actual Stargate printers, use a very different process in sintering, where it's much more of a, a raw material getting fully melted and going into the part. The, the key part about sintering is that it's often done with powders. And these powders are, are warmed up, they're heated by a laser source, by um, really any kind of, of power source. And it's enough for the outside of these particles to be melted sufficiently to fuse together, but, but you're not necessarily fully melting that whole piece of powder. And that's the fine difference is kind of fully melting versus getting warm enough that they they fuse their their essentially the metal grains together on the periphery. So then for the larger printers, right, I see the arms sit on top of these tanks. What's the type of uh, metal substance? Uh, what form is it going in for the full-on melting process? Is that also powder? Uh, the large-scale printers we use, it's actually a metal wire that that is used. And that's just oh. due to the scale of the printers that uh, it's a higher higher rate of deposition you can get with the wire, but you can't go to as fine of a feature on the prints. The, the powders, which are, you know, nanoscale powders, then are much easier to form or much easier to use to form a very fine features. And that's why we actually use the two different kinds of printing as a company. We use the wire and the Stargate printers for the very large structures, essentially the backbone of the rocket. And for areas that need significant detail, like the engine components, the injectors, the thrust chambers, the turbo machinery, certain brackets on the vehicle that are much smaller, we use uh, processes like uh, direct metal laser sintering or, or DMLS, then which is very high fidelity on, on detail, but uh, much smaller in scale of what can easily be done. So I, I had two questions about manufacturing actual vehicle stages, uh, like the tankage, it seems like kind of an obvious answer. Why would you print vertically uh, instead of horizontally? But I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why um, you can't just tip these things on their side and, you know, crank out as tall a, a rocket stage as you want. That's a good question. And one of the challenges is uh, that you are depositing uh, molten metal, then fully, fully molten. Um, metal. And there are ways to control that melt pool in a way that that melt pool can exist, at least in a very, very short time, uh, a horizontal like overhang. Then uh, as you're describing with having a rocket stage mounted horizontally and being essentially extruded out through the front head, then um, it is challenging on maintaining good quality and good deposition. Um, with essentially gravity not helping you in a sense where it is um, trying to drag your your melt pool and your molten metal um, away from the part. Um, but that is tunable if you can get that molten metal to fuse quickly enough that it can't essentially move around too far. There are challenges with mixing and interesting gradients forming in the metal because of the fact that it's under that, that weird gravity load and that stretch that's ongoing as it's fusing. But something that I, I could legitimately see as a route that makes sense in the future as we continue to advance the controls to the point that a developing essentially a horizontal extrusion printer like that could be possible. Um, but at least for the vehicles we make today, then where we make them in about six sections for the entire 105 foot tall vehicle stack, that uh, developing through those horizontal phases doesn't make sense just because the printers are still at a fairly reasonable height for developing vertically. Walk before you can run, essentially. And then um, do you do any 
any subtractive steps after you finish printing or, or do you print a final product? There is some subtractive we do as a company within the print cells. So we actually do have robotic machining heads that can attach to the arms, but we actually have used them less and less from where we originally expected to. And a lot of that is us realizing that we could print features that were uh, flyable, then, um, and we set our own standards there, right? That we, we know that through printing, we will have compromises we make on surface quality, on exact thickness control of parts that perhaps the rest of the aerospace community would not want. But from our perspective, that this vehicle may be, uh, you know, higher, higher strength margin because we have higher knockdowns on um, an as printed material, or there's more roughness, so there's more uncertainty and weight on this part. But all that means is that, you know, the vehicle will be bigger for its, its payload size. It'll be lower performing from an exact payload fraction size. But if that drives down cost and drives down the time it takes to iterate this vehicle, then, then we think that will actually what, actually be what wins out in the end. And that bet, I think, has, has actually really played out well with some of the customer acquisitions we've been able to make. And I can talk about that in a second. But, uh, but overall with the printers, we print the entire tank wall and shell with no subtractive manufacturing on the actual wall. The entire tank structure and the pressure vessel that makes up the propellant tanks is printed as in, in the state that it flies in. There's, there's cleaning done on the entire tank. Then, but we're not removing any surface or polishing it. It's mostly things like interfaces where the end cap where you can access inside the tank in case you need to, to maintenance something. That that interface is machined for seals and, and grooves and exact tolerances there. Um, but it's very little percentage of, of the as printed mass that gets removed. You know, single digit percentage gets removed by the machining heads, um, if that. And to, to talk briefly on the, the point I, I mentioned on alignment even with some of our customers is, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen with the low Earth orbit constellation community, there's lots of companies that are, are very dynamic in what they're looking for from low Earth orbit telecoms. It's an evolving ecosystem on a regulatory side, on the companies at play, on, you know, the architectures of those constellations. And that means that there perhaps are needs for changes in these payloads, the actual satellites going up. And at our scale, you know, there's lots of companies that are proposing launch vehicles at, you know, kind of the 150 kilogram scale, which is right where these companies have aligned their satellite constellations to is around that 150 kilogram scale. But the challenging thing that I, I pose to, you know, the, the customer community in the low Earth orbit telecoms market is what happens if the regulations change or your design changes, your architecture changes in a way where you want to increase the size of your payload? Who in the market will be able to accommodate those changes the quickest? And that goes into the iteration speed side that I've, I've talked about a couple times. Is that the ability to change quickly on a launch vehicle side will become more and more important as things like commercial telecoms and low Earth orbit become a real thing? Because that ecosystem's changing so quickly, you don't necessarily know what you need from a launch vehicle well ahead of time because you'll have downstream changes. Then, and you want to partner as a, as a commercial telecoms company with a launch vehicle company that can rapidly adapt to changes in the ecosystem. And we are positioned, you know, orders of magnitude better at that than, than anyone else in the market at, at any scale is ability mm -hmm. to adapt to changes to, to customer needs. So when we sign up our customers, that's not just because they're interested in one launch at one price. It's because we're in a spot long term to support their needs as, as those change. Let's uh, move on a little bit and talk about Aon One, which is your Methalox 
engine. You're putting nine of them on the first stage of Terran and then one on the second. I'm assuming Aeon is uh, printed using uh, DMLS. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Yeah, it, it, it looks drastically different than your uh, robotic arm printed uh, tanks. <laughs> and... and 3D printing engines is is less dramatic these days, but I was hoping you could talk some about about Aeon One and and what it took to develop it. And uh, I mean, your website I think says that you have a hundred parts in that vehicle, which is or a hundred parts in that engine, which is wow. nothing. I mean, mm. I can practically count that on two hands, you know. <laughs> yeah, the the engine tech has been really exciting. We we've been. Developing Aeon since, you know, 2016 with the first, uh, hot fires being actually in, in 2016. So, um, it was the first full year of the company's existence. We test those engines out at our Mississippi test site. We have a partnership with NASA's Tennis Space Center for a variety of infrastructure that's been built out there for a variety of, of programs that have, have since ended. And, um, that engine program has been, been really interesting because we 3D print the engines in a way where we combine, um, as you guys were alluding to, uh, for some of, let's say, the injector hardware, what could be hundreds of components into one print. You know, the injectors are a sheer coax injector, which are the kind of the pristine, high-performance injectors of, of the rocket industry, Then, but traditionally very hard to make and very hard to change because there's so much tooling, there's so many components that go into here that are brazed together with exotic gold braze alloys, like lots of things that make um, them very, very tricky um, to to develop then and, and to change. And one of the amazing things about using the printing for those is, is the same things I've said before on iteration ability, that those injectors can be made in, you know, four or five days and they can be put on the test stand and uh, tested. And you can, within, you know, a week or two of having started this print, have a new design out and a fresh design being printed. And that has unlocked wonderful things that are, are you know, is, has gone into that development campaign, like changing things in fairly distinct matters that could not be changed before in an engine development campaign. And we've had tons of lessons learned um, through that program, tons of changes we've incorporated in the engine, and the rate of change that we can incorporate is is something that is very, you know, honestly relieving for a lot of the engineers um, at the company because normally when they need to do a hardware change, you know, they they do that design work, they do the analysis work, they send it off to some contract manufacturer in one way or another, and then they work on something else for a year, then mm-hmm. waiting for that hardware to come. Then because iterating something like a, an Azure coax injector on an engine then could involve redoing, you know, castings, redoing braze setups, redoing all of the testing of all the individual injector um, elements, which which can take a very very long time. Um, so that's been um, that's been one of the main advantages of that program. Um, the methane methane lock setup we do um, has been for for a variety of reasons. There's a number of companies in the industry doing methane locks development, and it is um, it is challenging for every company across the board for the reason that uh, there's not a lot of heritage on high fidelity you know heat transfer numbers you know, pressure and temperature conditions where no one's characterized, uh, you know, things like methane before. So every company has gone through interesting challenges in understanding, you know, performance ahead of time and anchoring analysis models um, and verifying those models are correct. Um, so there has been some testing that's had to been done there. 
um, even on our side, in order to get the quality of data we need to continue to mature that design. Um, but for that engine, we've been hot firing the full thrust chamber stack since 2017. Then we completed uh, mission duty cycles, so full duration for, for the longest uh, campaign for our, our flight vehicles, um, MDC testing of all the turbo pump hardware last year, which was really excited, exciting. And this year, you know, we're continuing with, you know, preparing for uh, engine qualification going into flight one, then down at our test site, including activation and, and build of a, a number of new test stands there just to increase uh, parallel testing throughput uh, out in Mississippi. Um, but tons of activity there that's been that's been really exciting to see since we, you know, had our first subscale hot fires uh, four years ago. So um, these engines are pretty impressive, but um, I'm just curious, like what specific components are not printed, uh, if any, which I assume like things like, you know, like, I guess like some wiring, but <laughs> what's left that's not printed? Great question. Uh, the areas we don't print, um, and this is true across most of the vehicle, as far as kind of areas that are common with the engine are things like the electronics, um, and the harnessing that, that collects or connects all of the electronics. Um, we do architect the avionics in a pretty unique way then that makes them much more scalable than traditional designs then, because if you can change the rocket size overnight, then uh, can your electronics keep up with that scaling? So we purposefully had to architect and, and challenge our avionics team to come up with architectures that can quickly scale up or down. Then, and they've successfully done that, and those those systems are in development or or kind of testing verification before flight. For other components on the the engine specifically, there's things like seals between components because there's still still interfaces. Um, those are generally like plastic seals or coated, you know, Teflon seals in one way or another. And those are off the shelf. Then non-printed hardware. Um, there's uh, some of the, the turbo machinery. So the actual rotating machinery within um, the engine. Then we don't print today. We do see a future where we print that. Um, but for a variety of reasons, that hardware is some of the most stressed and most um, mm -hmm. kind of exercised hardware on the, the vehicle, that it wasn't the area for, for flight one, um, to really push into, because it's, it's very challenging on a couple fronts and it includes a lot of needs for very high fidelity on, uh, loads and forces during the flight, exact vibration requirements that you really only can collect from an actual flight. And we didn't, uh, we didn't want to put the bet that that hardware would be understood well enough going into flight one, but absolutely on later flights there is, um, a plan for transitioning that to printed hardware as we have better understanding of flight environments. So, uh, are you guys able to to print the um, the bell of the Aeon rocket, or or is that something that has to be done in a more traditional manner? For the Stage One engines, which have a fairly small um, exit bell on them, they're fully printed within the DMLS machines, so we're actually fairly constrained. But for a booster engine. Um, exact, you know, ISP and, and uh, engine performance based from um, the exit bell, then is, is not as critical. So we're, we constrain um, essentially at the DMLS printer size. There for the upper stage engine, though, the second stage engine, um, there is a, a significant exit bell on that. That exit bell is one of the areas that, uh, at least for flight one, is not printed. It is a traditionally manufactured uh, vacuum nozzle on that engine, but we do see a future where we transition those. But uh, that area did not make sense for um, for the early flights. Yeah. And that vacuum nozzle is, at least to my knowledge right now, the largest, most expensive, kind of hardest to iterate non-printed part on the vehicle. So absolutely one of the areas that would be targeted um, pretty early on for transitioning to a to a printed equivalent, but it's not um, 
not the area for for flight one. And and I've yeah. uh, I think I've mentioned it a couple of ways where we're definitely we are printing fanatics. We 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 love the printing technology, but we still kind of pick our battles for what makes yeah. sense to demonstrating the technology in flight before going fully deep on every single area where that printing could be applied to. Uh, oh, and have you done um, pressure tests for your printed tanks yet? Uh, absolutely, we've we've actually done full structural testing of um, some of the the stage articles um, as well. I, I'm I'm not sure if we've actually published any media on it then, but um, pressure testing, load testing on those um, those are some of the articles that we'll be going through uh, the stage testing um, integrated stage testing with the engines included. But it's been a lot of testing at subscale, so burst burst tanks. Mm-hmm buckling tanks at subscale, um, and then going all the way to full-scale um, stage articles that will we'll be going on the test stand with engines on them. So, so quite a bit there. And are those tests matching your expectations? Or are you beginning? Or are you continuing to learn as you're doing these tests? There's definitely always learnings. The, the the last round in any of the full scale articles, we've never had anything too out of family. But there's always mm-hmm. interesting lessons on on you know looking at stress and strain distributions and seeing something interesting happen on on part. And and by interesting, it's more interesting data. We've we've actually had a very successful series of test campaigns on the full scale articles, which the the, the credit to those is all the subscale testing we did to verify our analytical models and understanding you know relations between the deposition and residual stresses and and grain structure formation within the prints that led to what was a very um very on point full scale test campaign um that happened uh last year all right so it's about time to wrap this up our penultimate question uh, has uh, traditionally been, uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, so Jordan, where would you like to be found on the internet? I can be found either on uh, my personal Twitter, which is at the Jordan Noon, or on either of uh, the company pages. So the company Twitter at, at Relativity Space or our company website of RelativitySpace.com. Great. Thank you. Uh, there'll be links to all three of those in the show notes, so go check them out. And now our last question. So if you could bring one thing with you into space, what would that be? Well, maybe I, I'm somewhat prompted on this one in the sense of I'd bring a 3D printer. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the big ones or the little ones? I'd probably bring one of the bigger ones because in, in in my sense, the most leveraged thing to bring, and I've, I've clearly thought about this, I think, more than maybe you expected, is is it doesn't make sense at all to bring, you know, a mill or a lathe or anything traditionally on manufacturing. You want to bring something that can make anything. That's the most useful. So uh, a 3D printer, to me, is something that it just makes sense. So this week in Spaceflight History, we got just one winner, which is Chubby Tukosi. So congratulations. And the clue was on March 7th, 1962, wheel and sail. Yeah, I didn't know what that was about, but I guess he did. Uh, not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> so um, you might notice that this week in Spaceflight History would have been April <laughs> and not the beginning of March. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, well, so he- here's... We'll talk about what happened. Chubby caught the mistake and just like cruised through it. And so uh, Chubby's tweet was worded in kind of an odd way. And I was like, he sounds like he's correcting a mistake, but I don't think I made a mistake. And then, you know, I realized I had. So <laughs> March 7th, 1962 was the launch of OSL-1, the Orbiting Solar Observatory. It was a satellite launched into a 510 by 539 kilometer orbit at a 32 degree inclination on a Thor Delta rocket. 
the program, uh, the OSO program, uh, was intended to collect data over a complete solar cycle, so 11 years. Um, and they basically wanted to observe sunspots over this whole, oh, sunspots and, and solar activity in general uh, over the 11 years. Um, and they wanted to be able to observe the sun in UV, X-ray, and gamma. Now, this is an interesting vehicle because, and the reason it came to notice for me, because it was the first vehicle uh, with pointed instruments and recording equipment on board, um, which is pretty darn cool. So it was made up of two segments, the sail and the wheel. So there's the clue. Um, the sail was stationary. It pointed at the sun and it had two experiments pointing at the side. So if you imagine the whole vehicle to look like, um, say a yo-yo, I think is probably a good way to think about it. One half of the yo-yo was the sail and that was pointed at the sun and it had, uh, the two experiments, uh, for solar observations and then also solar panels, uh, that got pointed at the sun and, and stayed in that orientation, which is pretty cool, you know, at least for the 1960s. Um, <laughs> and then the other half of the yo-yo was the wheel, and that rotated uh, to provide uh, stability, you know, just uh, gyroscopic stability. And it rotated with a few second, a period of a few seconds. It also had room for seven experiments on board. I don't believe OSO-1 had additional experiments, but I, I think the later ones did. And it also, that's the wheel is where the data storage was. And of course, it was 1962, so those were tape reels uh, doing uh, doing storage. And then they uh, transmitted home on a very exotic uh, frequency known as FM. Um, <laughs> so in the FM band, as opposed to the X or C bands uh, that are really popular today. And no, I'm not going to name more bands, but like those are the main ones that we're using today. So it launched and uh, did its did its thing pretty well. The first things to fail uh, were the two data recorders. So there were two on board. So one and then the other failed. The second data recorder failed on May 15th. So March 7th to May 15th is the, the kind of the primary operation. And uh, once the data recorders failed, it, it basically just uh, uh, broadcast its data home real time. So they probably had some patches where they uh, weren't able to collect data. Um, and then it survived uh, on real-time uh, data until May 1964. So, you know, two years later, um, and that's when the batteries died. And I checked, uh, it's not still in orbit. It deorbited in 1981. So here's my mistake. The original event I had found was the 14th of April, 1964, um, which is in this range. But then I got into research and I decided to switch over to uh, OSO-1, which is in 1962, but outside of this week. So that's that's where that came from. So if the clue had been 1964, uh, I would have been able to claim that I, it was this event all along. Uh, but the 14th of April, 1964, OSO-B, which was going to be named OSO-2 once it got into orbit, but OSO-B failed catastrophically during integration and checkout. So this is really unfortunate. It was in the spin test facility at the Cape and it was, it had already been integrated onto the third stage, the, the upper stage of the Thor Delta. That's a solid upper stage. So, you know, it wasn't like it was a liquid stage that hadn't been tanked yet. It was a solid rocket and it was ignited by static electricity. And so the, uh, the whole assembly, well, the, the third stage and OSO assembly launched 
indoors, uh, slammed into the roof and, you know, kind of ricocheted and scattered and, and got stuck in a corner, um, until the, uh, until the third stage burned out. Unfortunately, three people died. I didn't really look into it, but I mean, if you're going to die during uh, a solid rocket misfire, that's a pretty grisly way to die. So, uh, OSOB was then recovered and refurbished. They had enough spare parts and they could do repairs. Um, and it did end up launching. And I think, uh, when it made it into orbit, they, instead of calling it OSO2, they called it OSO2B. Um, but that, that would have been, <laughs> that would have been the, the event for this week. So that's this week in spaceflight history. So what is our clue for next week? Yeah. Next week in 1965, the clue is five alive. That's nice and succinct, succinct, succinct. Yeah. Succinct. Succinct. So Five Alive, that's next week in 1965. Uh, if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got two launches and then two other things. So what's our first launch? So our first launch will be a Soyuz 21A flying Soyuz MS-16. Uh, that's going to have people on board. Yay. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of. It, it's been funny watching uh, a couple people on Reddit asking, well, with everybody here on Earth in isolation, you know, self-isolating pretty much, uh, what, what's happening on the International Space Station? How is this going to, and the answer is it really doesn't matter. Um, right. <laughs> it's a good question to ask, but yeah, it's not, uh, something that we're going to stop operations in space for. Um, definitely stop, uh, ground operations launching some missions or at least slow them down, but we're still flying people to space. So on board is going to be Anatoly Ivanishin, Ivan Wagner, and Chris Cassidy. The launch will take place on April 9th at 08.05 a.m. UTC. Coverage of on-orbit operations will be broadcast on NASA TV. So the docking uh, coverage will begin at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and the docking is scheduled to happen at 10, 15 a.m. Eastern time. And then the hatch opening is scheduled, or the, the coverage for the hatch opening uh, will begin at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And the hatch opening will actually take place at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. And next up is also on April 9th, and that is the Long March 3B launch of Nusantara Dua, which is a telecom satellite which will be replacing Palapa D, and that's launching from the Xichang Launch Center on a Long March 3B, and that will be launching at 11.15 UTC. So you can probably catch, the, well, you can maybe catch that somewhere, but probably not, I'm guessing, since it's a Long March 3B. I don't know. Yeah, if gonna be- so actually, that's that's what's really cool about this one is it looks like it is actually going to be live streamed. Okay, cool. Um, and it won't be live streamed by China, um, but it looks mm-hmm. like it'll be live streamed by PSN. So if you go to their Instagram page, it looks like they're going to do it as like a story. Um, and they might also do it uh, on their YouTube channel. So you just search for PSN Engage, E-N-G-A-G-E, like Picard mm-hmm. uh, on YouTube and you'll mm-hmm. get there. And then we actually have a couple of planetary science uh, events coming up. And so... On April 10th will be the Bepi Colombo flyby of Earth. Uh, this is, right, the uh, multi-spacecraft mission to Mercury. Uh, it's not going to get there until December of 2025, so it's, uh, it's quite a ways to go. But this will be its uh, first and only flyby of Earth. So on April 10th, uh, just know that it's going to be zipping on overhead. And if you want to actually go and try and check it out, uh, if you live in the southern hemisphere or closer to the equator, uh, you might have that opportunity. So... Keep an eye out. And then a few days later, on April 14th, will be an OSIRIS-REx checkpoint rehearsal. OSIRIS-REx uh, has, you know, 
downselected to its possible sampling sites, and um, it's going to do a uh, essentially um, this checkpoint rehearsal will consist of the spacecraft dropping to an altitude of about 75 meters, at which point it will stop its descent and execute a maneuver to back away from the asteroid. So just to really give a opportunity for the team and the spacecraft to uh, do a little practice before the sample collection. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that means it's time to de-orbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter and Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.